And we have three-fifths of Mike Gordon. That's who we could get. We had a studio immediately. Diamond Street Studio. Immediately adjacent to Variety Playhouse. Uh, still could only get 60% of the band, but we were delighted to do so. Scott Murawski, who I used to see regularly with Max Creek way back in my, my young days, Seth. Your young, thin baseball playing days. When I was up in New England, young, young aspiring deadhead. But Max Creek was a band that they got a knock as a dead cover band when they really, even at their most dead covers, it was only, you know, what, four or five a show? They really were just in the same spirit. And they also just announced Max Creek, uh, the, what do you call the Max Creek Down or the Creek? Camp what, Creek? Camp Creek, yeah. Oh, good. I didn't see that. Yeah, Wormtown's doing it, as they always do, Wormtown. And you're like, who's Wormtown? You've been to no, festivals. Love, you know I, the Wormtown I traders. Worm, I'm not like that. I love Wormtown. God I, bless you. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about our listeners. Oh, like, you're talking rhetorically. Oh, my God. And then uh, Robert Walter joined us in the conversation as well. The man who brought a spacesuit. Wonderful, wonderful solo album. And the man who, like, I didn't realize how involved he is in the music for the Mike Gordon band. He uh, He's a big part of the live performance. Yeah, and I got to say, um, a lot of people, even people in the Mike Gordon realm already, you know, really hardcore Mike Gordon fans, are a little disappointed that he's not doing, you know, Green Sparrow or some of the early Mike Gordon solo material. But you got to understand, first of all, Scott and Mike are clicking as songwriters. 
Second of all, the stuff they're writing fits this band perfectly. And it's fueling them. So if you're just looking at the set list and saying, oh, they don't look that interesting, go to the show. Oh, it's, yeah. it's incredible. They're sure, sure. so fired up. Uh, you know, Mike has always had great bands, of course. Mm-hmm. That's why he's one of my favorite music. He and Bob Weir are probably, and those Bar Brothers, if I was going to put together a dream band, those are my favorite musicians. They, they're the ones that bring the most compelling, inter- inter- consistently interesting stuff to me. But this Mike Gordon band has the added thing where they're all for them seem to be pushing him not just yeah. to be creative, but to be funky about Five it. Five of them, right? Because you've got... Well, uh, the four, Mike plus the four are, oh, are yeah, pushing yeah, yeah, Mike. Yeah. So when you have Mike, not just a creative guy, but you, he's keeping it so funky, you know? Oh, yeah. And you have the wisdom of the Murawski going way back, and you have the oh, young let's, John let's, Kimmock who we'll yeah, learn Kimmock, about. Yeah, Kimmock, who was so nice for Kimmock to join the interview so that Rob could ask him about his father. I just one thing, didn't I? <laughs> no, you asked. Listen to the interview. You're oh, like, really? Everything, like, so John would be like, yeah, so yeah. That, uh, you're like, so, and did you learn that from your father? How about when your father was playing with so-and-so? So <laughs> you we, were so kibbock We've got a new term. <laughs> That'll be the paternal gauze. <laughs> I paternal gauzed him. <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, speaking of gauzing, I want to go ahead and tell everyone that this interview that you're about to listen to yes. complements the interview that our Osiris brethren, Tom Marshall, did with Mike Gordon. So if you listen ah. to Mike Gordon's interview and you listen to this, you're going to get the full scope. And where was that? Osiris. Yes, Osiris Podcast Network. So many great podcasts. I love it. And now part of the Jambase family. Jambase is our media... Um, media... Partner? Partner, yeah. I was like, sponsor, but they're not a sponsor. Media partnership. There's a partnership with Osiris and Jambase.com. And you fish fans, uh, if you don't know about... uh, You fish fans. If you don't know about Helping Friendly Podcasts by now, then I don't know what to tell you. HF Pod, listen to it. They're surveying... Um, for, for millennium, the, yes, uh, for the big yeah, cypress, two thousand big cypress. Yeah, where were you? What were you doing? What are your stories? I have my story. They're surveying for your uh, your memories of all that. I remember I I was your cell phone being able to cycle ESP find your friends. You know what I mean? I was there with uh, Jennifer Saunders, my uh, former girlfriend. Thanks. Best part of our relationship was how we traveled for music together. That's a whole other story. But we had an RV, and we she had gotten us access. I don't want to say how, but she had gotten us closer access. So when they did the soundcheck jam, we sat on top of the uh, RV, and we couldn't really see him. Like with binoculars, you could kind of see him, but you could hear, kind of hear it coming off stage. But we augmented it because I was making cassette recordings, of course, off the uh, radio. And that was the millennium. That was I was promoting concerts, but I wasn't in the festival world yet. Like that was like, and then all those people that produced that are people that I ended up working, you know, for the last 20 years have worked with. Interesting. And the 20th anniversary Cypress will fuel the argument because Seth and I are going to spend New Year's together, but we're not, we're, we're not really sure which, which way to go. Well, I just got a opportunity. I can't tell you what, I can't tell you where, but I can tell you your rock chenier may be doing something for a band and their charity on the 29th of December. So I'm working the details out, and when I can announce it, I will. Uh, but I'm pretty excited about that. But that's the 29th, so that leaves us 30-31 to fly yeah, or I'd- go anywhere. I'll tell you, Fish is going to play Miami, which I kind of feel like, hello, why would they not play Miami on the 20th anniversary? It kind of seems like... But then anytime something makes sense... It's like they'll be in Hawaii. Yeah, something's know? too obvious. They're not into it. You know? Yeah, I'd love to see them. I haven't seen them on New Year's Eve since Miami a couple years after the Cyprus. It's been a minute since I have. But well, I got to tell you, Seth. I think I, it was Miami last, but not that I, one. I kind of like to go see someone like 
Green Sky Bluegrass or Infamous String Dusters or some band like that. Uh, 21 will do that, but 2020. Or if Humphrey's New Year's becomes some kind of milestone, maybe go to that, which maybe that's somewhere where you have a girlfriend or something, you know? I don't know if I'd bring my girlfriend to an Humphreys McGee show. Yes, they come on just to get them to play Booth Love. So <laughs> everything will be fine. Uh, well, going back, to, getting back to it, this was the first. This, this interview took place on the eve or in the afternoon, I should say, of the Mike Gordon Band's tour. But this is their debut opener, and I was kind of impressed with the the, the show they performed that night. It's kind of. The reason why I'm saying, okay, I was impressed, and the reason I was impressed is knowing that they only re- had a little bit of rehearsal time, maybe a couple days prior, they but had how, some bust-outs. How, how do you know to, to what extent they rehearsed before that? We, I think we actually asked them in the interview. Did we? I know I asked Robert before it, but I think we did during. Robert, who's buddies with Spencer at Diamond Street Studios, Spencer who recorded this for us and who's going to be doing a lot more work for us. He shot video as well. But Robert uh, was very familiar with Spencer and very excited to see him. I was excited to see all three of them, but particularly Scott. I, I, you know, he's. He, I've been seeing Scott play guitar for a long time. It was really nice to sit down. Yeah. And he's a down to earth guy. He's also so, a asshole. So there, you got that. No, he's a transplant. He's whatever. A, he's but he's, learning. he's got. He's. You drink enough Dunkin' Donuts from from Dude, Boston, you're gonna get it in you. Not a Bruins fan. Not a asshole. Sorry. Oh. Go to some Bruins games, Scott. Jesus. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's jump right into it, there, Rob. Lives in Boston, Bruins. What? Huh? Huh? Speaking of jumping in, don't forget, tax season's coming up. Don't wait till April and get screwed. Robert Polay. Get Polayed. Call them today. Go on to Polay Clark, P-O-L-A-Y-C-L-A-R-K.com. They are your financial advisors for your business, music, entertainment, uh, sports, also accounting. Get those taxes done, and if, and if you... If you need an extension, call them and then make your plans to get with them after tax season. But check them out, poleclark.com. They're representing some of the biggest and best. They're experienced in the entertainment field and athletic field, and they care. And I want to point out. Point. He's actually pointing, folks. Robert and his son, Dylan, do you know what they're doing today? Uh, some spring training. Baseball? They're seeing the Red Sox play the Yankees down in Florida. How about that? I got texts. How about that? I got texts. Good to, good to hear text. from you. It's fun because Robert will call me from Florida. He t- takes goes around to stadiums and he puts me on speakerphone. And it's fun hearing his son excitedly talk about all the different stadiums. He loves baseball. Right on, Dylan. And watch the Super Bowl with him. Hey, Dylan. And now, without further ado, three-fifths of Mike Gordon in a few thousand seconds. <laughs> sunshine, baby. Raise your tongue, and she snapped. And 
antisocial, I was feeling trapped. She said it's a sunny day, I didn't like her tone. I said, can you please calm down or leave me alone? Can you please calm down? We are sitting here with Scott Murawski, Robert Walter, and John Kimmock of, well, is it Mike Gordon now or Mike Gordon Band? Mike Gordon. Right, of Mike Gordon. We are of Mike Gordon. You got oh, the, you got oh, the fingers, Gordon. the legs, and John, what are you? Hands and feet. Hands and feet. Yeah. Fingers, legs, hands, and feet. Uh, and we are all limb by limb here in the Diamond, Diamond Street, Street Studio. That's right. That's right. I want to jump in on something that um, Mike spoke about with Tom Marshall in the uh, Under the Scales podcast. And he said that with a, a go-go, you, you kind of stretched both ends of the spectrum in that you were able to make it more accessible and poppy and at the same time make it more strange. Do you agree with that? Yeah. And do you find that, that you'll take that into your own music apart from this band? You want to answer that? Uh, absolutely. Um, Mike and I were writing and we wanted to, we were referencing pop tunes, I guess, uh, mostly for beats. Um, and we were, we, you know, we want, there was a definite, uh, motivation to be accessible and so there's not a ton of chord changes um there's not a ton of bridges mike has a tendency to add 16 bridges if he can but in this album we we kept that down to a minimum um and so yeah i would say that the the music is definitely more accessible um and then when we went into the studio working with sean everett we were able to stretch the boundaries of sounds and um and it was and it worked out pretty well, I thought. No, Rob, we definitely should talk about Sean. Uh, but maybe he's won five Grammys. Five? Well, maybe six after this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't mean to lie; it just would be great. <laughs> 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 but uh, let's uh, let's uh, continue. But let's uh, circle back yeah, and Sean, talk about Sean. Well, go ahead. Sean had all these tools at his command, and he could bring them up in a heartbeat, right? Yeah, he worked. He was very fast with getting interesting sounds and always kind of like pushing it out of sort of you know whatever you would standardly do. It also took to, like the tunes that even if the the thing was based on a rhythm that was sort of referential to something else, instead of going further in that direction, he'd always kind of like take it somewhere else, which made even though you. You know, there's less parts in the songs, but each part is more interesting. Or mm -hmm. Well, let's more... dissect that a little bit more, though. You talk about uh, creating interesting sounds. How how does he go about doing that? A, a number of ways. Um, <laughs> when we were recording things, there were a number of things that I'd never seen before that he did. Um, when he would have Mike sing, he'd have the Mike sing the part normally, and then he'd say, "Okay, pretend you're a cartoon character and sing it like that," and then he'd pretend you're a heavyweight wrestler and sing it like that. Um, so we had all these. I think his aim was to get as many different uh, colors into the palette as he possibly could, so that when he was mixing, he could choose from all these different sounds, even though they were basically the same recordings of the same thing. Um, he also did that with my guitar. In one case, he recorded through my rig, and he recorded through a Gibson amp, and he recorded direct and with a <clears throat> with a mannequin head microphone. And so, even though it was just one guitar part, there were five tracks put down. And by mixing those different parts together, he could change the timbre or the sound. And so. 
<clears throat> and plus, we were recording in a studio that had like zillions of keyboards, and so it was always like, oh, go get this keyboard, or go get that keyboard, or whatever. And <laughs> Robert and, in a candy shop. <laughs> yeah. I forget, Mike counted, but there, I, don't, I forget what he, number he came up with, but like we used a lot of different keyboards. Yeah, he made a list, right? Yeah. He had a list of all the keyboards. And then the drums were mic'd up in all kinds of bizarre ways. I wasn't even there for part of that, but I saw pictures. Weird. Yeah, like very unusual things. Didn't he use the headphones for some of it? Headphones on either on the top head and on the shell, you know, like cans, like that on both the toms, and then that microphone. I don't know if I should. I don't want to give away. <laughs> don't give away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So well, you know, Mike, John, you, but well, can, didn't he can use actually Spencer? On the, Spencer, on the can, right can you hear John? Okay. Yeah. yeah okay, okay. Cool. So. He did use those. Yep. I don't know how much he used. I mean, I think a lot of it came from the one big RCA mic up top, and he like likes distortion in a certain lo-fi way. So yep. I think that was the point of getting that. And then he could pan like the distorted parts of it or something. I remember when I was a kid and we didn't have microphones. We would turn the, the take the headphones and yep. send them send them to in instead of out, and it totally works. Really? Yep. And you guys wrote three records worth of material for this? Uh, yes, essentially, yeah. We had written like 17 songs, <clears throat> and when we finished with that, Mike was like, I have more ideas, we need to go back in, and, and, and we wrote 17 more. So we went in with 34 songs, and then we kind of prioritized which ones that we liked the best, and then we went to Sean and said, these are the ones that we liked the best, and we played them, and he's like, oh yeah, I can see those. And then we played him the other ones, and he was like, no, no, the original ones that you selected are the are the ones and that's 34 tunes or so you said and then you're hitting the road here tonight's your first night in atlanta on the tour but you have even new material that you haven't recorded yet yeah well you've already done three or four which by the way am i right that previous to this unit mike would wait until an original was recorded before playing it live right original um in a lot of cases yeah there, you know he has a <clears throat> I guess he can divide it up into two categories. There's tunes that we write that he feels that can go on the road and develop as a band and develop that way, and then there are other tunes that he holds back that he wants to develop inside the studio environment. So, so Trapezoidal Sunshine, which is a favorite of mine, we already talked about it. <laughs> that would be one that, that needs to be road-worn. And is that one evolving? My... Uh, it's evolved and it's devolved, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I just have one question about that. In all fairness, Scott, no, I have one question for you. Yes? Was that guy your cousin? <laughs> who was that? Who was that? He's not my cousin. I don't know. I don't know who that was. I thought he I thought he was with you. He's not he's That's not weird. Someone tell Chris Friday to find out who that was.
there, there was a whole batch of tunes that we were playing on the road before a go-go that never ended up on the album and they were like tunes we played a lot like they were very yeah. much part of the fish, like fish did a couple of i feel like some some things sort of exist as a live thing uh-huh. yeah and aren't necessarily maybe ever going to be on a record you know but but, but some things are you know it's, it's it's sort of like yeah we play them for a while and then yeah, so if I hear you right, though, you're saying it's like when the Agogo comes out, you've got what was recorded, but also what you were playing. So, ten years down the road, that's the Agogo material, even though it's not on the album. Yeah, I feel like maybe they're all, all part of a part of the process of it. But the record does kind of work as a not a lot of those things wouldn't have sat right next to the other as a right, as, right. as an LP. There's a there's a feeling of that the record tells a story, and you don't just it's not just a collection of all the tunes you had from the last year that. They kind of sit, they hang together without being a concept album. Right. They do have things in common that make it a good listen. And I've loved every version of Mike Gordon band or Mike Gordon, but it does seem like there's a level of trust with this unit that he's that he's not had with the others, and that would be one indication. And the improv also, he, you're going more into uncharted territory that doesn't sound like any of the other bands you play with, and and you're finding new sounds as well. And a lot of those are coming from his keyboard. Would you Would you agree? I would totally agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, we're encouraged to uh, push the sonic boundaries and not just sound like, you know, guitar, bass, drums, percussion, keyboards. No, you know, we're encouraged to to push the envelope as far as sounds go and, and as far as improvisation goes. Although there are... <clears throat> I guess I guess there's a, there's an impetus not to sound like a jam band per se. There's an we jam, but we're, we don't really we try not to noodle around and you know just go off in noodle land. We, we're trying to compose as we as we're jamming. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of that in there. Well, there's so one. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just to say, Robert, you got this whole sci-fi element that yeah. they, that that you've been playing with your new album. So how much does that come into play to what he's saying? I mean, you know, they both have led into each other. My experience with Mike has sort of it. It was a place where I got to sort of mess around with more synthesizer textures and things like that. That in my groups have always been sort of, you know, based on '60s organ jazz or something. So I, I got to sort of indulge some of those interests and then they looped around into my music and then now that's doing that to you know it's coming back to this band so it's it's all sort of a thing but um but i do think from that there's a there's an attempt to improvise in a way that's less soloistic and more about textures and creating like a vibe mm-hmm. um where traditionally you somebody solos and everybody jams around them so it's just getting away from that, a little more minimal, you know. So th- that kind of leads into... Well, I do, first of all, our, yeah, our yeah. listeners love it when we get smacked down. So if what I'm saying, what I'm about to say about you is wrong, smack me down. But I, I, I smack him, I'm closer, just yeah, give me the word. It's fine. I'm, can you want to see how it goes? <laughs> One Murawski technique that I notice in this Gordon band that goes back to the Creek days is sometimes in the <coughs> middle, middle of your solo, you'll start a repeated pattern, almost as if to, like, come on, you know, rally the troops and then launch back into the solo and it can like lift the energy. Is that accurate? I would say that's accurate. Yeah. Oh. Um, I would say that's accurate. I like repeated patterns because I, I guess because when you repeat things, it allows the people that are listening to latch onto them. Um, and the simpler they are, the more people can latch on. I like to create a feeling, you know, I like to shred, obviously, what guitar player doesn't. But I also like to play things that encourage people to think, oh, I could do that. I like, to, I like people to 
to get people to think that they could be in my position, I guess, or something. I don't know if that makes any sense. That goes to you, air guitarist, in front of me during the show. <laughs> <laughs> we do we do exercise in this group sometimes where we sort of create a, a everybody has to pick a pattern and stick to it, and we play it for a long time. Like, and you can't vary from you, it. You can't. Is that hard for you, John? What? Is that hard oh, for you? Varying exercise? Yeah. It's not. No. Actually, yeah, it is. It really depends on the day. <laughs> or if you're starting it, I think. I mean, you know, a lot of drumming, I feel like, is about a repetitive pattern in general. And then, you you know, you or ornament that or whatever. But that's kind of why music's hypnotic and why you want to dance to it. And, you know, but, but to really stick it and not play anything but the pattern is interesting because... As you're playing it, you start to things emerge from it. Your ear gets so much more in tune with the thing. Same as like listening to a loop, like a sample. Yeah, but I, I'm over wondering. and over again, you you find you know so much more about that bar. Yeah. Than you ever were what if you just heard it go by. But you, you ever can, go back to like record it and start hear what you did in the beginning? It's kind of like telephone. Like how much did it change as you evolved so slowly? Where did it change from? Here's where it was. Up here's where it was, and here's where it is. Is it the same? Does it change? Where did no. it change? How did it change? Were you influenced by? Of course, you you maybe like adjust a little bit, but it's you know if you if you try not to, you, it definitely like reveals things that you wouldn't ordinarily pay attention to, and then. As such, on the gig, there is an t- attempt to like come back to that idea occasionally without being so staunch about it. Because if you do stick a pattern, it does, you know, it becomes sort of psychedelic in its own yeah. way, you know? Well, does it free you even by doing something like that? I th- I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking of like the focus on the candle kind of meditation thing, you know? Yep. Where the more you fo- focus on this one thing that's constant, the more sur- of your surrounding opens up. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we get up there and do it, because it's there's less... Pro- I mean, sound check when we're doing it, I think everybody really tries to play the same pattern, and then that sort of sets the tone for maybe a jam up there. Usually I hear Scott start one first, and these two pick up on something, and then we're all like kind of in this weird forward motion-sounding groove. Is it more challenging to, to improvise off a song the more rhythmically complex the composition of the song is? Uh, hmm. I think if I were, I don't know, it's tough because there's a lot of notes happening, but when there is a lot of notes, I try to, I would hope that I try to back it off so there's more room because you would want a jam or an improvisational section to kind of start somewhere before it's just like everybody's doing every note. One thing I notice in reading about you guys, although you're the youngest, you have a pretty wide frame of reference to recent music. Is that true? And are you, are you bringing that to these guys a little bit? Yes, we see uh, a lot of head- so. heads. Definitely. Definitely. Any examples of well, artists? What I'm bringing? Yeah, like an artist that they weren't aware of that you, you know, brought to them. No, I. While Scott's talking about Fiona Apple or something. <laughs> He's talking about Fiona Apple, you're talking about Kanye East. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm that current. Um, but I think what ends I think what ends up happening mostly is some playlists get shared. I think Robert's actually probably the most influential in terms of bringing in music, you know, to the and into Mike's world. Okay. And there's lots of playlists that float around that he makes that I, I don't know if they're current, but some of them are, they're just like really informative and go into deep genre, you know, I mean, stuff. At, after the gigs, we everybody sort of sits around and different people DJ, and there's always like a, a sort of exchange of 
Craig too. Stuff and st stuff that you wouldn't. That's not related yeah. to this sort of genre or whatever or scene exactly. Well, I know you have that. But, you have a list that you put out about two years ago on um, Spotify, which I still use, which is a great list. But um, do you do you do a lot of playlists so that you're sharing, or is this all internal? Well, both. Sometimes just we're just sitting around playing stuff, but mm -hmm. then I do make playlists and send stuff around, and Johnny plays stuff, and Craig plays a lot of like. You know, either African music or hip hop or reggae or things like that. That you know, he's a good person to sort of remind us that the music should be danceable and have a rhythmic priority, rather than you know, in, ca in case we want to indulge our more progressive rock mm -hmm. <laughs> bad habits. Do you know that? Uh, <laughs> do you know that Robert actually introduced John to KVHW? Ah, I love KVHW. <laughs> You don't, you don't want to know how much I love your father. He's one of the most <laughs> wonderful players. I got to see him play with Jerry on Golden Gate Park about 1988. Well, but that's another story. Well, but, but you, just, you just were in a very cold place, weren't you, John? Alaska. Alaska, yeah. right? What, uh, you want to share a little bit about that? Or? I was there with Jerry Joseph, Dave Schools, and Steve Kimlock. Nice. Like a quartet, three-night uh, bash, I guess you would call it, in a little club. But you didn't just drive there. Did you? We flew there very in a very special way. Yeah. <laughs> it was really cool. Um, and we had no material, and we all played mostly Jerry's tunes and a couple of widespread songs, none of which I knew. How did you fly in a special way? What do you, what do you we reference? We flew in a private jet. Nice. And, and it was really cool. Fancy. Nice. Probably my first and last time. <laughs> <laughs> um, w one of the great things about you know being on the road and playing with each other more and more is that the improv can flow and be effortless but is there also a danger in that leading you down the same patterns and I, I always often would hear Garcia say one of the things he liked about Weir is his rudeness like he would throw something weird in it that would force him to go a different way rude or root rude r-u-d-e rude playing as a matter of fact I remember when Lazy River Road was out there Jerry was was saying I'd like to get those melons to play a little rudder on it you know sure. rudeness was because Jerry was a flowery player is rudeness important to your band as well I, I I agree with that in general with like with any improvisation that, that you want to be supportive, and there is a there is a certain kind of um, manners involved in playing with other people because you want to not be a ball hog and keep everybody going. But it's important to have to not be so um, tasteful that there's no point of view. Like you have to have ideas and you have to assert your ideas, or else nothing happens. Or else yeah, everyone's it, sort of tiptoeing around, so you have to have an opinion, come with a point of view. It's know? like a conversation where you're just always agreeing with the other person. You don't want to be that. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally, yeah, totally. I agree, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 like, it's like you say, um, yeah, but what about this? Right. You know, uh -huh. or did you think about it this way? You know, or I disagree with you here, and we're going to... You know, yes, and... It makes the conversation more interesting. Right, uh -huh. but something totally rude out of left field could bring you into totally new territory, Absolutely, right? yeah. And especially if you get in a rut, like this band plays, doesn't play frequently enough to really get stale. You know, it's always getting like really awesome right before we stop. Yeah, that's what we're doing. out of the first night. few months. You know. <laughs> well, those Balder shows are, are a testimony to that. Yeah, it starts, you know, it starts getting hot, and then, but it, it doesn't go past that point very often just because we don't play that much. But if you are on a long thing or you've been in a band forever, you know, like Grey Boy All Stars for me, where you just get, you're like, I've done this like a million times. It's important that people sort of take it left and do un things to surprise each other or else you get bored. You know? Do you work with a set list, this band? 
Yep. Do you deviate from it often? Yep. And do you know the segue? Do you, like, Zappa, I know, would have a set list, and his sound check would essentially be working the segues. Do you guys know what's going to segue? Or I was watching one of your shows, and I heard a ref. It sounded like you wanted to lead him into the next song, and then they went back to the song, the song ended, and then you played that song next. Is there sometimes a gray area? <clears throat> I can, yeah, I can. It's really yeah. impossible to know. Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of that is teasing the next song, you know. Um, sometimes I'll try to lead someplace, and Johnny just doesn't want to go. So, so <clears throat> Johnny's very big on endings. He likes endings of things, and so, uh, yeah, um, and and that's fine. So, <clears throat> it ends up being that where I'm teasing something that's going to happen in the future or whatever, and then we come back and finish what we're doing, and that's that's all well and good. I mean, it's all very. There's a wide level of acceptance in whatever in whatever you throw into the mix as far as the improvise. We've occasionally figured out a, a, a cool slick transition yep but I then a lot of times it's just random or we've figured out and never do it or <laughs> yeah <laughs> whatever. i've gotten more comfortable with that but it is the transitions on the fly are a little bit they're tough for five people to connect i think in the moment that mike wants us to connect right there so we all kind of catch each other a couple bars later or it's, and, it's optimistic know, it's, like, it's it's pretty I, I, I guess I could find, I, w I would like to find an example of it because it probably sounds better than it feels up there. You know, it probably feels a little bit worse to not really nail it the way that you would want to. So it sounds better. So it might seem like... I've heard some things really where we definitely are all on different things and it's actually kind of great in its own way. <laughs> it's, sort of, yeah. it's sort of all, we all end up there eventually. I mean, you know, there is an interesting challenge to say oh, we're going to figure out a way to segue this and you don't know how it's going to work and you have to all find your way into the next key and into the next tempo somehow. Mm -hmm. Well, you were just saying, though, that, <laughs> you were saying though, that listening and, you know, when you're doing a tour like this, you're it's quick. You know, you, you start, you finish, you're out. There's not much time between gigs. It's not an extended tour. So when do you get a chance to listen? Do you, and do you listen to your... The tour is mostly uh, actually kind of right before this other, other one. The next one that comes up, when they start releasing shows, we know that there's like a tour for us coming up, so you could start listening kind of closer to when you're going to play, which is nice, rather than right after, because that's, your ears are kind of tired of it. Right, you know? right. There's usually a point halfway through the tour where I want to hear what's going on, and so I'll usually, usually the sound person is making some sort of stereo recording, and halfway through the tour, I like to just check in and see if... What I think is happening is actually happening and make adjustments and things like that. And there's a lot of interactive elements to your show. Now, do you find that there's influences you're playing in ways that sometimes don't reveal themselves until you listen back? Do you mean interaction with the crowd? or Yeah, like the LED thing and oh, right. the keyboard. I think you had a ball going through. Not a ball, but some sort well, of... Well, tonight's the first night of, the, of their tour. No, in the past. There, but, but, but in general, maybe there's something that they're oh, releasing yeah. tonight they can talk about now that sure. we're going to... Air, you know, five minutes before the show. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't. I, I haven't even seen the, the stage. Um, I I don't. Do you feel like you? I mean, I pick you pick up on the energy from the crowd. I don't know if I get particular musical um, ideas. <laughs> <laughs> no, not necessarily. And the real—that's a whole other, you know, with the interactive experience where the audience is playing, you know, to us and whatever. When I hear those back. 
Um, it's 50-50. Sometimes it's like, wow, that's amazing how that works. And then other times it's like... Sometimes it's just a uh, drum circle at a... Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's an electronic drum circle, basically. I mean, it's a lot of times it's synth sounds, and it always, to me, sounds like me playing really poorly. <laughs> <laughs> Until they get the virtuoso, and the audience is like, that sounded really good, time. <laughs> like, what was I thinking? <laughs> Did I have too much to drink? <laughs> you should say featuring the real. You should get that yeah. <laughs> worked out. Or too much to think. Yeah. <coughs> we'll um, talk more about that, Rob. Who is McLean Hedges, and what, what makes him famous, or her? <laughs> oh, that's our friend in Denver, who, um, he, he owns a, a bar called the Rhino Yacht Club. It's, he's just a, he's a friend of ours. He's, like, a, really into, like, food and spirits and stuff and it's sort of our our restaurant friend your zambi perhaps yeah i'm not that was just a a shout out but i speaking of shout outs i, I gotta mention kimok the cd not just uh with your father but also with bobby vega who i think is one of your father's great collaborators he brings yeah. out a lot of wonderful playing of your dad yeah. um is that a unit that will tour or what, what yeah, are some of your other I projects don't know, man I, I would say you're more likely to see Steve and Jeff Kameni doing stuff than Steve and Bobby for the coming years. But I think him and Jeff have such great chemistry and they, they work together kind of as, as much as they can. So I think that'll probably be the next collaboration he does, uh, if he does any, because he's been collaborate, uh, collaborating with him a lot live. And so usually that means there's something coming next. What's your main other touring unit right now? You still have that there rotating? There isn't really one. I think I, I mean... You had one, JMMP, I think. It was rotating. JMMP. Oh, Jimmy's just a, that's a, a little alias I used to release electronic music. Okay. Under. Um, and other than my dad, I tour a little bit with um, this guy Pappy from Cabinet. We have a band called Gatos Blancos. Um, doing some dates with Marco Benevento later in the year, some dates with Robert later in the year. Yeah, we just had a cool little run. We did, yep. Um, and it's kind of all over the place. It, I, I'm trying to be as in many places as I can because expose yourself as much as possible. Cool. And if you're interested, much more wizened. And if you're interested in booking him, he's available at. And Rob. One thing people wanted me to ask you, Robert, is that this wonderful spacesuit record, which, by the way, crank it on headphones, people. So good on headphones. Oh, awesome. Are, Thanks. Are we going to get to hear, I know you did the material a little bit last year, but scattered dates. Are we going to get a lot of dates and get to hear this material live? I don't know when and if I'm going to do a super long tour. I've been sort of like testing the waters and doing weekends in places where I, I sort of know it's going to work and, um, you know... I, I haven't been touring out in the country under my own name in recent years, so I'm sort of like trying to build from my strengths, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, but yeah, we'll be doing more. We're going to do a little East Coast run. There's a few festival things. Um, well, yeah, my, I'd like to do it as much as possible. Really, you speak of testing the waters. You might as well just take over like the jam room and then have all your projects there, all all three of you. You know, just That's just throwing idea. it out there. That's a great idea. <clears throat> but um, yeah, but I'm yeah, I'm trying to play as much as I can when I can. Um, Put it between projects and when I can get all the people. More with Mark Friedman on bass? Yeah, that was a great run. I really enjoyed it with Mark and, um, and Scott Metzger. And now, that's John. a slippery scope. Yes, I love Mark Friedman and the slip. And 
Mr. Mr. That's the first one of the interview, by the way. Mm-hmm. I waited that long. I got to see Max Creek for the first time in 25 years. At the, I think it's called the Metro in Pawtucket. Oh, yeah, the Met. The Met. It was so so good to see that you guys are still inspired and still improvise well. And the bassist, John... Ryder. Ryder. Sorry. But one, one thing I love about Mike Gordon is that I don't hear a lot of other bassists in his playing. Even when he was a young player and I was seeing them in clubs, he was so distinctly on his own. Mm-hmm. But I was at the Met listening to John, and I'm like, oh, my God. I mean... This guy's in, was this was influence on Mike. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. I would say. Are, are, do they interact and hang out at all? Is there? Any... Um, they don't hang out, but they interact. They um, they talk gear a lot to each other. <laughs> They're both gearheads. So yeah. Mike would be at your shows back in the day, right? He was like an annoying oh, yeah. fan first. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. I, um, <laughs> like transcribing crap and yeah, that you? whole that whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I my first memory of him was. 1982, I think, and he showed up and he had transcribed one of my solos and he gave me a cassette with, with the song that he had transcribed on the left channel and him playing bass with it on the right channel. And I was like, It's like okay. the Leo Kaki tree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly the same thing. But yeah, so uh, yeah, I would say that we were an, we were an influence on him. And, it, and um, he used to bring Trey to the shows too, in fact. So I remember seeing them in the front row. Well, I, Go well, ahead and, uh, let me just follow up on that thing. I've heard their old manager. Who's old manager? Uh, Fishes, John Paluska, was a fan of Max Creek and that his favorite song was Tuesday's Gone. So that when Fish was playing in Great Woods and he chose to go to the All-Star game, they had you come out and play, not Tuesday's Gone, yeah. Yeah, I played Tuesday's Gone. Was that, is that true that that was kind of a, to goof on the manager for, I, for going to the All-Star game? This is the first game? I've ever heard of it. Oh, okay. You can't I, deny it, though, either. I, I can't know. deny it, though, no. Uh, well, go back to influences and talk about Bang Bang. Hmm? Bang Bang. Kill Your Mama. Oh, right. Um, I heard you. We, we talk about the Joni Mitchell Kill Mommy Syndrome, where if you have one player, you're too influenced by that, you need to completely stop listening to them. You had a twist on that. You're more, you don't have to stop listening to any one player. It's more about listening to everyone, right? Um, yeah, and I don't necessarily listen to guitar players either. I, you know, I... Um, if you listen to guitar players, you're just going to sound like a guitar player. And so I went through a phase anyway of trying to listen to horn players and trying to pull apart what they were doing. I got a couple of books and tried to pull apart what horn players were doing. Did you play a little horn? I played, yeah, I played trumpet for probably 10 or 11 years. And I've always felt that... When you play trumpet, you always play trumpet, right? Hmm? When you play, when you played, you always play. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing I discovered the, the, about... Guitar players who used to be horn players is that they understand breath, they understand phrasing. You know, it teaches them, how, you know, how to phrase things and make sentences out of what they're doing. So, is there a Max Creek song not performed by Mike Gordon that you would like to see in the repertoire? Ah, no. <laughs> I'm actually there's stuff I'm writing currently that's that's coming into the repertoire that I don't think would be fitting for Max Creek to do. So it's actually kind of better that I have another outlet for my material that I wouldn't necessarily bring into Max Creek. Would any of the spacesuit material, like Chalk Giant? Well, we, we actually were doing one um, that ended up being Current Futures on the album. But before we the album was finished, we were playing it at Mike's show a little bit, and it was called Treat Dust. Yeah. But we never did that much of it. But sure, I would play those tunes. But I, I kind of like that all the different projects have a little bit of a different 
repertoire, you know? Like, I don't need to play those songs in this band and vice versa, you know? But if they came up, maybe. <laughs> There's a lot of ways that, uh, John, you reveal yourself to be wise beyond your years, and this quote would be an example of it, that just coming back home and being as present as I can to those that matter most to me. Yeah. Which a lot of musicians get into their 60s before they figure that out. Uh, Very successful musicians. Is yeah. this coming from your dad? Are these the kind of things your dad taught you? Well, he's always been uh, a family man. We have a big family all spread out all over the country. And he's been touring since he was 18 or something. So... I don't know. I mean, it definitely comes from him, and it all—I think it just comes from whatever all my influences. The people I, that I got to tour with, I got really lucky, and I'm grateful to have racked in the miles that I did with those people and who I am currently with. Because I think uh, I think there's a lot to say for like the longevity of playing together if you can kind of realize like your pace that you need to go. And I think that I, I found my pace pretty quickly. Like, wasn't like I don't know, not partying too much. I don't think, and I don't really want to. I don't like the urge to. I kind of want to work and keep the music first. Yeah, I like playing music a lot. That's why I'm here. So, would you agree? Again, smack me down if I'm wrong. But yeah. if your father's carrying ready, <laughs> if your father's carrying anybody's torch, it's West Montgomery's. Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's up for debate. He loves West Montgomery, but he's got a lot of different facets of his guitar playing, depending on which one he picks up and at what time, you know, and who he's with. Um, I will say I've found him mo most recently kind of really inspired by Miles Davis because he's been pulling the frets off his guitars and he's got some little effects chain that's all analogued out and a really great amp and he just sort of sounds like that hmm. now when you know we get into those sort of jazzier spaces so i mean it, it well i want to do i want to do that yeah <laughs> <laughs> he would be, he would that sounds be amazing super happy to you know he would sound good on that spacesuit stuff for real I mean, yeah nice but yeah, he's got the frets off, so it almost doesn't sound like a guitar. It's all horny and like, you know, not playing chords. And he's just making these crazy statements in the music, you know, not really soloing. It's just kind of like in between Jeff stuff or, you know. So he goes through phases of things. I wouldn't say that's like totally accurate. So smack So can I smack him? Yeah, smack him. The ultimate patient player, though. <laughs> right? Is, yeah. How much did you get to dip your toe in the TRI world? I TR Studios. Two, well, I guess like one and a half records there. Oh, Satellite City was made there? Satellite City was made there, and some other remnants of things have been been cut there that I've worked on. That's an incredible space. Probably the coolest studio I've ever been in. A quick rewind sound, if you want. <laughs> Talking about different, uh, taking inspiration from different people playing different instruments. <laughs> When you chose your first pedal, you chose it based on Andy Summers of The Police. Now, what what was it about his playing, and how much were The Police an influence oh, on you? And did that lead you to dub reggae? <clears throat> it was a gift, actually, that pedal. So I didn't choose it. Oh. My dad bought it for me. He thought that was the pedal I should have. <laughs> and But I loved it, and I still do. It's sort of a... It was, it's such a... What pedal? 
It's a little boss chorus pedal, the blue one. Oh, yeah. Yep. That was totally I like the 80s madness. Totally. That's totally Andy Summers. Yeah, totally Andy Summers sound. And it is like a, it gives you like a warm and fuzzy feeling in this, in a way that could marginally, I mean, it could be tacky used the wrong way, but there's something funny about it. But yeah, the police I listened to when I was a kid, like everybody else of my generation, and that did lead me into reggae. But I also had, we had, my dad had a Bob Marley. Babylon by Bus, that live record on a cassette tape that I listened to all the time, so that got me interested in reggae. I always liked the sort of the priorities of that music, as far as the rhythm section was so important to it, and and there's an embrace of um, economy in the parts where it's not about playing more notes or or having more complicated structures. It's about finding the perfect sort of equation of where the bass and drums sit with each other and then if if it's good like that and it's grooving hard you can play something forever and it's never boring you know it's the same as james brown to me it's like mm. that's why all that music is fascinating or fela you know you it's made on paper it's a one bar maybe four bars pattern and that's the whole thing and it can go on sometimes for 20 minutes it's never boring because it's it's not about a more complicated structure it's about a better structure <laughs> Very nice. Babylon by Bus was so ever-present when we were young. We didn't even have to buy it. We were just issued it when we got to high school. We were issued it. Here's your textbooks, and there's Babylon by Bus. (laughs) I had an experience when I was a kid, too, where I went to the park and heard a reggae sound system play, and they were playing. It was Bob Marley's birthday. They were playing Bob Marley tunes, and I had known the songs, and you sing along with the songs and whatever, but to hear it, the the sonics of it upside down on big speakers where you can really feel the bass... It made me realize there's a whole story that the bass and drums were telling underneath the song that was just as important as the song. It, you know, that flipped my head. Like, it made me cha- change everything I thought about music. Uh, I have to ask, Scott, since, uh, since Max Creek did have a Grateful Dead element, and they were never a Grateful Dead cover band, but you definitely carried on the spirit. I first saw my first Max Creek show in 82, just weeks after my first Dead show. Oh, was it at the Met? No, that one was... Just kidding. Actually, in your drummer's backyard. Camp. No, that was a year later. You, you had a Camp Creek in like your drummer's backyard or something. Uh, yeah. I went well, to we, should, we, we can talk about... What's your greatest Grateful Dead experience yeah. as a fan? My greatest Grateful Dead experience. Well, I mean, besides playing with Kreutzmann. Uh, that's <laughs> great. I mean, that's a great experience. But, I mean, the, the, I remember the first show I went to was 62074, and uh, they had the wall of sound. And it was really the first concert that I ever went to. And so, I mean, everything about it just kind of blew me away. Did it seem like the instruments were coming from different directions when you were at the Wallace Hall? Um, it was, that was also my first time doing Mushrooms, too, so I don't remember that so much. But, <laughs> but I went to uh, Dillon Stadium uh, the year after that, and the Wallace Sound was outside. And it was like, close your eyes, and it was like Europe 72. It didn't sound like it, there, was like, there was a huge stereo thing, but the, the sound, the qu- overall quality of everything was massive just really really good since you brought up psychedelics when was the last time you performed on psychedelics i never i never. mean not you know i tried it at parties like in the 70s um and it just i, I you know it's like guys i can't play anymore that's <laughs> it so no i don't play on psychedelics ever have you ever remember Probably. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say and can't deny, Rob. The sounds must get crazy. No, yeah, um, you know, I find it interesting. Um, it's, there's, 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 um, there's benefits and dangers to all those things, but, um, you know, yeah, I've, I've, I've 
I've uh, experimented with those things. It's, um, you know, the real thing is I'm finding it more and more compelling to be real present of mind when I'm playing. How about you, John? Probably. Probably as well. Yeah. All right, well, let's end no, with this. No, hold on a second, though. Uh, we will, uh, you mentioned... Um, the creek and uh, it, that just got me thinking of Wormtown. Now I'm sure you've played on a Wormtown Jello shot. Oh, that's a good, <laughs> that's a very New England question. I don't know that I've played on a, a Jello shot. I've done the Jello shots after playing. You live in Boston. You a Bruins fan? Yeah. Eh. <coughs> I, I I mean, if I if, if of any hockey team, I like the Bruins, but okay. I'm not a huge hockey. Okay. You know, he fan. spent he spends a lot of time where I was born. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Framingham. Right on. Yeah, that, actually, when I'm up there, I'm visiting Whalen. The Patriots fans annoy you yet? And I love the Patriots, but the fans have gotten <laughs> Tom annoying. Tom Brady annoys me. He's so awesome, but it's just he's just so smarmy about it. I just, you know. Jordan only won six, so we'll have a seven championship winner. <laughs> You're listening Let's to Sports Radio with If Rob you could Turner. each give us a snippet of what's going on in your future, and then we'll end with that. We some, Thank you for your time, but you have a sound check to get mm-hmm. to. So. Um, some, something that coming up, oh, whether with this band or with your other band or on your own, whatever you like. Well, Match Creek just put out a uh, first album in 19 years, live at 45. We'll be coming up on, we're actually at our 48th anniversary, and it'll be 50 in a couple of years. So. Big 50th show, maybe, in Boston? Mm, probably something. Somerville Theater? Oh, that would be good, but I don't know. Jamaica Plains. <laughs> Robert? Um, we're finishing up a Grey Boy All-Stars album. That's right, it's supposed to be pretty much around all, Jazz Fest, right? Yeah, it's all mixed and stuff. We're just... Um, working on artwork and all that stuff so i'm excited about that one jazz fest is coming up for me which is a, always a busy time with a bunch of different gigs and um i have a fun uh is it this benefit at brooklyn bowl oh i saw that that's the, the one that uh, month with, with yeah it's, uh, Billy martin and joe mm-hmm. russo and o'teal and mark rebo and peter <sighs> affenbaum and nice. Dave Harrington. It's a bunch steve of, berlin i think is even there yeah, cast of hundreds and it's um all really interesting improvisers and we'll that that seems like very exciting, yeah, and that's music. a benefit. Also, I was actually trying to help out as your yeah, rock for, for that one. It's called the creative. You just played with Benny Bloom. It's music creative. It's yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's I don't know too much about the organization, yeah, it's but like it's, a, it's like a it's a music education thing. Um, mm-hmm. started by Ornette Coleman. And yeah, like that's that's what surprised me. I didn't realize. I looked at that. And that was like wow. And it's it's it, you know very influential, really cool organization. And you just played with Benny Bloom and Johnny Vidakovich. I imagine that one well. Oh yeah, yeah, in Brooklyn, Brooklyn as well. Brooklyn comes alive. Yeah. And that's where I met Dave Harrington, um, played with uh, Karina's thing, and we played together, and he's a very interesting player who I hadn't met before. Great guitar player. All right, John, in your future, and then we got to let you go. What's coming up? I have up a couple of Kimok singles that we worked on together uh, coming out in the next three or four months. One's already out, called Invocations 1. I got some dates with Marco Benevento, O'Teal and Friends, Mike, Kimok and Friends, Robert Walters' space suit, and that's kind of leads me into the fall. So, butter biscuits, butter than biscuits. O'Teal Burbage song. Get him to break it out, please. He doesn't have to do all dead covers. And in he's got three, a lot of greatest songs. And all three of their near future, Rob. Yes. Mike Gordon band on tour. Catch them now. They're, they're, we're going to release in this a few right away. Hours, so. If you're, if, you're, if you're listening to this now, which is impossible, catch them tonight at the Variety Playhouse. No. Don't be shy. More Mike Gordon shows. More Mike Gordon shows. Love them. <laughs>
Seth. That's a first. Well, let me go into the debt. Yep, you're right, Rob. It's the first time we've played an entire song mid-episode. That is a first. Although we did once do like 45 seconds longer than I thought we should, but I don't produce the shows. Thank God. But uh, the reason is it was because during that song, I really love that song. It's called Take It As It Comes. It's one of the um, Scott Mike compositions that's been written, but was not part of a go-go, I don't think. Um, but it was during that song that <clears throat> was the beginning of an emotional afternoon at the uh, new undisclosed location because this was originally going to be a tweener. This episode. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was supposed to be a tweener for you. I always wanted it to be a real episode. Well, it's going to be episode 73, Seth. Oh, my God. It is episode 73. Oh, wow. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. We're very excited down here and emotional. Um, Would like to point out, they mentioned how their, and I mentioned in the interview, how their tour got very strong at the end of the Boulder shows. You go to livefish.com, you can buy at least one of them. I don't know, maybe both, but from last fall. I imagine maybe by the time this comes out, they'll have some stuff from this tour. I think that'd be, the, <clears throat> that'd be nice. That Atlanta show was great, but that was the only one it went to. The band is smoking. They're about to do a long run at the at the uh, Sinclair in Boston. Completely sold out. Tough ticket, as it should be, because they're sounding wonderful. A couple other things: the Max Creek Festival is Strange Creek, and it, uh-huh. I don't even think it's theirs because the headliners seem to be Infamous String Dusters and the Motet and a couple of the others. But it's called Strange Creek, May twenty fourth to twenty seventh. You can see Max Creek who have Live at 45, their new CD, 13 carefully selected live tracks from eight different shows. Creek is back, man. They haven't had a... Seth, it's been almost 20 years since they put out a record. And they're coming up on their 50th anniversary, as Scott said in the interview. Mm-hmm. And if you want to buy John Kimmock's Satellite City, it's on the MRI label. Wait a second. Are you actually talking about... Did you just say John Kimmock? Are you yes. talking about... I, I was sure you were talking about his father. Oh, man. <laughs> Seth's really riding me for the paternal gauze, but I love Steve Kimmock. And At any rate, though, so where, where can they get uh, John's album? What was that? And I love him with Bobby, Bobby Vega. It's the MRI label. And uh, it was great to hear that John's going to be part of some of these uh, spacesuit shows. Robert's, Robert Walter this year is going to do, I guess, he's, as he said, he's not doing a big full tour. Uh-huh. But he's going to be doing more dates than last year with the 20th Congress and Mark Friedman may be involved, Scott Metzger. John Kimmock. So good things to look for. Yeah, that is, that's great, Rob. Well, thanks there, Seth. <laughs> uh, Very ener- sincere. You know, our energy right now is so different. I'm so mellow right now. And you're like, how much did you have coffee? No, you just drank all that zip. Don't say the name. Don't say the name. I was on a top performer and they treated me like crap. Don't say the name ever. Although I love the what product, that, I've relish? just recently been revisiting it and could talk, could sell it really well. That's why I made so much money doing it. What but, flavor is that? Relish? It is none of your business. Oh. Uh, um, our next episode, actually. Uh-huh. Wait, our next episode or? Is it, not, is it going to be checking in and it's going to be an experiment and we'll explain that in the intro. But it is some of the jam band Trump is going to see the light of day. Wow, how about that? And we'll Before. gauge feedback, and then in the future we could do it in a various ways. Um, get John Ban Trump to comment on any Jam Band events that are happening, and it might be fun. John Bon Trump. Jean Bon Trump. <laughs> the French Jam Band Trump. Jean Bon. So we'll end with this. Uh, I have always been raving about Robert Walter's Spacesuit CD. Like I say in the interview, put it on headphones. It is wonderful. It is a great disc. Royal Potato Family, if you want to buy it. But here's a live version of a song from that called 13th Key. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. Enjoy. We have Peter Rowan coming up after Jam Band Trump. So please, Inside Out WTNS, follow us. Thank you.